this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. So, if you had to explain what you thought reality was, how would you do it? That there's this world, then other worlds, or just see this world as like a doorway into another world? Or do you see this world basically as this is all there is, and when I die, then I'll turn into a spirit and live in some spiritual existence? Or do you sometimes get tempted by the idea that it's not that there isn't anything, it's there's even less than anything. It's all an illusion. Well, we're Catholics. Obviously, we believe in reality, that God is what ultimately is real and keeps all things in existence. And what's the image of that? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Happy Easter, good news. Let's talk about doors out of this world. I do like talking about uh, philosophy, especially pagan philosophy, because it's as far as human reason has ever taken any human person. The beautiful thing about the pagans is like this controlled um, atmosphere where there just isn't any hint of the Judeo-Christian understanding of God, that God is completely other. Their ideas of gods were that somehow they were uh, part of what uh, physical reality was. Uh, in Plato and Aristotle, when they talked about the good, the good was the closest they ever got to thinking about God. So why do we talk about uh, Platonic or Aristotelian philosophy? Because this is something that can appeal to any human being. And you know, as we evangelize, we want to think about how human beings think. Plato and Aristotle are the people you've met in your life that aren't Christian, they're not Jews. They may have some Christian or Jewish background, but they always say, you know, I don't believe, I, I believe in something. I just couldn't tell you what it is. It's probably your kids, for heaven's sake. But that the idea of, uh, of rational philosophy, the use of human reason, is that it can point beyond the world. It cannot, on its own terms, give an understanding of, of Jesus as the Son of God. That's what takes faith. But philosophy can point to the existence of that something more. Plato would have called it the good or the form of the good. Aristotle wouldn't have seen it as in another realm. His big difference with Plato is he made the form part of material reality, a hylomorphism of these two forms, the form that is like the spiritual and the form that gives form to what is uh, the material. Uh, there's a great atheist astronomer named Carlos Rivelli who wrote a book that said, uh, reality is stranger than you think. You can get that book. It's an interesting book. But he describes reality as being this ocean that waves move through. And it's like the form of the wave comes, and then when the wave dissolves, it's just back into this formless, chaotic sea. And he thinks of that as quantum physics and then its interrelationship with uh, the form of reality as, as we see it. But you know, in some ways, Plato beat him to it. And in the 5th century BC, Plato wrote a book called The Republic, which is probably one of the most fundamental books in Western philosophy. And in that book, he told a story. Why am I talking about it? because it is really a wonderful way to think about the resurrection. 
and why the resurrection and the Christian gospel uh, appealed to so many people in the ancient world because it made sense of reality. It still does in a much bigger, holistic way than any of its competitors have. But so listen to Plato's Cave and see if you can understand what I'm thinking. Where am I getting this? Well, I've read Plato's Republic, but I was brought to mind because I've been reading a great book, which I think you would like. It's called Doors in the Wall of the World, Signs of Transcendent. Doors in the Walls of the World, Signs of Transcendent by the Boston College philosopher, uh, Peter Kreeft. He also has another book that's an audible book called The Platonic Tradition. And it is a great listen. Uh, Dr. Kreeft is a very devout Catholic man, and he sees how uh, pagan philosophy uh, helped make the, um, the Christian gospel uh, intelligible to the Greco-Roman world. I mean, it really is providential. But okay, so here's the story of Plato's cave, if you haven't heard it. And I'm just going to quote directly from Dr. Kreef's uh, great book, Doors in the Walls of the World. Buy it, read it, enjoy it. Here's a quote from his book. The most famous passage in all of philosophy at the heart of the Republic is Plato's cave. In this myth, and he says the myth just means a sacred story, Plato says that we're all born into a little dark cave. The cave's the mind that sees only appearances and does not question what they are, the appearances of. So we are prisoners there, and we don't understand what the appearances, where they come from. And our necks are changed so we can't turn them around, and all we ever see are shadows on the walls in front of us, mere appearances. And we think, well, that's all there is, but there is much more. And the point of philosophy for Plato is to unchain our necks so that we can see them more. The shadows on the walls of the cave are real, but they are only real appearances that are cast by more real, more solid things. At first, we do not see these things because they're behind our backs. You're chained looking at the wall of the cave, and these are projections coming from behind you, according to uh, Plato. Uh, and... The, at first, we don't see these things because they're behind our backs, and there is still more. These things cast shadows only because there is a fire in the cave that makes the light. But we don't see that, either because we can't turn our necks around or we just take the firelight for granted. That is, we don't use our minds and think it through. Finally, there's a road that leads out of the cave into a whole other, larger world outside. We don't believe it leads anywhere, and besides, it's a hard road to travel, being narrow and rocky. But if we do turn our necks around and see that there is more, even in the cave, that seeing is what physical science does, we might wonder what is outside the cave. That wondering is what philosophy does, and then we could actually escape. So science, reason, can only take us so far. And he talks about wonder, the idea of what takes us beyond simply where reason can go. So we can find out something about quantum mechanics, but okay, then what? I mean, where does that come from? Why is the world like that? And so the philosopher asked why. So here's what he says is the key takeaway out of Plato's cave. Walls are limits. 
And so they're just, you can't go past them unless you find a door. And so doors through the walls, that's what we're looking for. So he says the cave walls in our experience are our experience of time, uh, you know, are, are getting older, the time that we live, space, uh, this material space that seems to be what reality is, and matter that uh, space and time uh, work on and with. Uh, these are the shadows, he says, of this greater reality. So he says that Plato would say there's three kinds of realities for every human being, three kinds of things. First, it's the objective material thing. Uh, it's the walls of the house that you live in. The second, it's your subjective ideas, how you perceive them. You don't always see them exactly as they are. That's why you can walk into the kitchen and you're looking for something, you don't see it because you don't expect it to be there. So our subjective ideas help reveal material reality to us, but also sometimes we can walk by what's obvious. And then Plato says the third thing that exists is absolute uh, timeless ideas. And so for instance, if you're a kid in class and you and another kid have the same answers on your test and no cheating was involved, but the teacher gives the one kid an A and you an F, you know you've been treated unjustly because that idea that somehow if you do the same thing, you should get the same result as another person. That is justice. That would be a timeless idea for, uh, for Plato. Something's very wrong when reality is chaotic. It's not ordered towards justice. And so as <coughs> Dr. Kreeft summarizes these things, he says there's three ways of looking at the world. There's moreness, there's sameness, there's lessness. Well, moreness, there's more to the world than what appears. It's how Catholics think, right? That God sent his son into this world. There is more to life than what appears. The second way is sameness. This is all there really is. It's objective, it's real, but it's coming to an end. And we come to the same end as any other animal. Or lessness, uh, that it's all an illusion, that there's nothing really solid, that a reality is just weird. It's that Carlo Rovelli idea that it's a chaos of the quantum field and occasionally forms pop up like a wave or like you and me. Um, and then it goes away and back into formless chaos, never to return. Moreness, sameness, and lessness. And he says the three philosophies then are mysticism, uh, which would be something like Christian theology, rationalism, which says I can only believe in what I explained and everything ultimately is explicable. And finally, uh, reductionism, where everything becomes what he calls nothing buttery. Um, poetry is nothing but neutrons firing in your mind. Your love for your spouse is, and children is nothing but biology. There's nothing more to it than that. And it all ends at some point. Whenever you hear someone say, you know, that is nothing but, that's called reductionism. And reductionism does play an important role in science it's about explaining things in a clear, rational, simple way without getting overly complicated. But the problem is some things are overly complicated, like what it means to exist. And so, according to Dr. Kreeft, you have three different possibilities or categories of philosophies of life, how to look at the world. The mystical, like the great saints, 
the rational, like the guy that can explain everything or thinks he can explain everything, uh, and then reductionist, that there's really nothing to explain. It's all an illusion. Uh, Freud used to say, I think it was funny, he said, everything is just a rationalization, and usually involving sex. That was one of his theories, which, of course, Dr. Kreef says, which, of course, reduces Freud's theories or any psychologist's theory of the human being to nothing but, uh, you know, uh, some kind of sexual rationalism. Very, very odd way of thinking about things, but it's when you reduce things to something far less um, than they really are. So, are you in the cave and there's a door out, or are you trapped in the cave and there's just no way out and you're going down with the cave, or are you basically just part of the cave and it's just an illusion that you're anything different? Moreness, sameness, lessness, mysticism, rationalism, reductionism. Interesting way of thinking about things. So let's say the gospel is about mysticism. And let's say that Macbeth, the great story of the Scottish king who listens to three witches and it ends up destroying him. Uh, Dr. Kreef likes to quote Macbeth as uh, mere nihilism, the idea that nihil, there is nothing. So the spectrum is from the gospel to Macbeth. So before we go to the gospel, let me quote this from one of Macbeth's final scenes as he's preparing to die and his despair. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. It's when you think about your life and you have lost the people that you loved, and life seems so empty, you can think like Macbeth. But there's a door out. And Jesus leading the Exodus out of Jerusalem. That's the way. Let's turn and talk about the gospel. And so the gospel, the Old and the New Testament, it begins in a garden, right? Uh, with Adam and Eve falling, failing. And it ends in a graveyard with a woman meeting the risen Lord. Um, we've gone from Eden to a place of waste and death, but the gardener's the same. God comes looking for his people in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, and he comes looking for the woman in the graveyard. And so think about uh, the gospel this weekend because it's a wonderful gospel, and I take it as historic. If you go and read through John chapter 20, it has all sorts of interesting historical details as from an eyewitness. And so the woman goes and she sees an empty tomb. That's one of the signs that all the gospels agree on. Jesus's body isn't anywhere. She goes and tell Peter and John, John being the author of the gospel of John. And so they race to the graveyard to see the empty tomb. But the younger man, John, wins. He gets there. He says he looks in, but he doesn't go in. He waits for the old guy, probably huffing and puffing with bad knees to catch up. And then he lets the older guy go in, which is a nice detail. 
a younger man's deference to an older man in the ancient world. And then he goes in after him. And what he sees is the cloth that covered Jesus' face laying one place folded up neatly, and then the shroud folded up something else, another, another way. Um, Father Serge said, well, that's because Jesus got up and he took off his faith cloth and folded it off, up. Then he took off his shroud and folded it up and put it down. Maybe the angels helped him. I think it's because Mary taught him and Mary taught him to pick up after himself. And so you're seeing again the touch of the Virgin Mother there in the gospel. And then it says those two left and the younger guy believed, but the older guy wasn't sure what to think. You know, it's really interesting in all the stories of the resurrection that um, disbelief is part of it. And what uh, brings them to belief? Well, Mary Magdalene, it's not in red in the church this year, but I think it's read, read in the, the following liturgical year because we always get John chapter 20 when it comes to Easter because it's such a powerful, direct, first-person account of what that first day of the resurrection was like. And remember, Mary stays around and she's weeping and there she encounters um, the risen Lord and she doesn't recognize him, which is another one of those interesting aspects to the resurrection stories that Jesus is not recognized until he chooses to be recognized. It's as if we are not completely seeing reality, ultimate reality the way it is. God has to do something to reveal it to us. And how does he reveal it to Mary? Well, he says her name, Mary, and she says, Rabboni. And he says, don't cling to me. And maybe what he means is, don't think of me just as you knew me as the historical Jesus. I have yet to complete what I came to do by ascending to my Father. And so why is it really a wonderful thing that she recognizes him when he says her name because he's God's word. That's how the Gospel of John starts out. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and nothing came into being except through him. So what happens when you die? Are you hoping, gosh I am, that you hear Jesus say your name and he calls you out of death? Because at least you could understand that that is how um, how the gospel sees it. And then the very next story is the one that we have is the gospel um, for this Sunday, the second Sunday of Easter. And it's from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. And it's the story where Jesus appears in the upper room and the rest of the disciples get to see them because all they have is a woman's word, which is another thing, it's historically interesting about the resurrection. All four gospels say, the first woman, the first person to see the risen Lord is a woman. And uh, nobody believes her that she could not under ancient law have been a witness to the truth in any kind of official proceedings. Only men could be part of, uh, of like the jury system or witnesses in the trial because women couldn't be counted on according to the ancient world. You can't underestimate the amount of abuse women have put up with in, in history. Feminism is, for all of its sins and its unbalance, comes from somewhere and tries to address real injustices. Um, but I think what's interesting is the Gospels all say it was a woman because that is like a statement against, against interest. 
um, to admit that. You know, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians when St. Paul talks about the witnesses, he talks about Peter, James, and John. He says Jesus appeared to 500 at once, then to others, and then he appeared to me, but he never mentions that the first appearance is to a woman. woman. And it could be that he was a Pharisee, and that's how Pharisees thought about women, and so he just didn't want to say it. But I think that he's more of a salesman trying to talk to the Greeks, and uh, he just didn't want to have the problem of admitting that the first person to see the risen Lord is a woman. But in any event, Jesus comes to this upper room. And what does he say? He says, peace be with you. And then he sends the apostles. And then he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. It's where our sacrament of confirmation comes from. You see it especially in Acts of the Apostles, chapter eight, where the people of Samaria were only baptized in the name of Jesus. So they had to call down Peter and John to lay hands on them so you receive the Holy Spirit. And it's that early part of Christian history when they're trying to understand how to take the gospel out because it's not the baptism of John the Baptist. It's the baptism of the Jesus who baptizes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's how the Gospel of Matthew ends. It's where our Nicene Creed comes from, our Apostles' Creed. It's from uh, our baptismal creed, understanding what it means to be baptized. So part of that is part of the resurrection story. Jesus and his disciples baptized before the crucifixion, um, baptizing apparently with the baptism of John. But Jesus changes it by giving the Holy Spirit because remember what it says in, in John chapter one, I baptize you in the water, John the Baptist says, but one is coming who will baptize you in water and the Holy Spirit. And so it's the resurrection that fulfills the prophecy of St. John the Baptist. And then he gives his disciples the power to forgive sins. That's why you go to confession. I have no idea why the Protestant Reformation undid this. It's so clear in scripture that the church has the uh, authority to forgive sins. But I think it has so much to do with the Reformation's reaction against church authority and running into the arms of the state. Um, and you can assess for yourself how effective that was at protecting uh, religion, morality, uh, or Christianity. Um, but the Catholic Church has always maintained, and rightly, that is the authority to forgive sins. And who demands proof? Well, Thomas isn't there. Everyone remembers the story of doubting Thomas. He demands physical proof. Let's go back. Is he being mystical? No. He's stuck in the cave. He believes what's in the cave. And so he demands to see Jesus as part of the cave. And so when Jesus comes back again and Thomas is there and Jesus says, peace be with you, Jesus invites Thomas to come and touch and see and believe that somehow Jesus is the other. He's the mystical reality with Father and Holy Spirit beyond material reality. But the incarnation is that he's become part of the cave without being reduced to the cave. And so that's when Thomas says, something you probably say when we elevate the host and the chalice at the consecration at mass. And the priest says, this is my body that will be given up for you. This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the uh, everlasting and eternal covenant. And you say, 
my Lord and my God. You're quoting St. Thomas, right? Because he saw him as part of the cave. And that's something about the Eucharist also, that bread and wine are part of the cave, part of material reality. But God's there too. That's the mystical uh, view of life. And so blessed are those, Jesus says, another beatitude, blessed are those who believe without seeing. It's like Mary believing because she has the word. That's why Jesus is the word. We learn to see because we get, become good listeners. We become good listeners because we listen to God. So the Acts of the Apostles, interestingly, from, from St. Luke is the first reading. And uh, it talks about the early church in um, the second chapter of Acts of the Apostles. And it said that the early church devoted itself to the teaching of the apostles, getting together the kerygma, what they would proclaim. Uh, so if you read the New Testament, especially Paul, very clear the church is trying very hard to be on the same page. Um, lots of heresies in those first few centuries kind of like whack-a-mole. Every time you turn around, a new heresy was popping up. But the church has always been committed um, to an apostolic preaching. And so part of that, of the doctrine, the teaching of the apostles, is also attention to the community and communion, communal life. Because uh, it's not an individual sport salvation. Uh, part of the church, and you grow individually because that's who you are, but you are a rational, dependent animal. You're dependent on community. And that's why you really can't uh, seek your salvation on your own with, with much hope. Becoming part of the community is the way that uh, we live and work out our salvation. And then it, they have the sacraments. St. Paul is the first one in, I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 11, talking about uh, the, the Eucharistic meal we really get the words of institution from St. Paul and they're repeated again in the gospel, but they exist in St. Paul's writings before any of the gospels are written. But in Luke, Acts of the Apostles, it said that the early church devoted itself to the breaking bread and prayer. And so good doctrine, fellowship or communion, the sacrament of the breaking of the bread and prayer. This is the life of the early church. And uh, in the first letter of Peter, which is also a, a reading from the first, from the readings for the second Sunday of Easter, um, he says that through our baptism, we're born anew to a living hope through the resurrection, where we have an inheritance beyond material reality that he says is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Doesn't that sound like the Platonic idea of uh, that reality is bigger than material reality. Uh, it's because Plato had already been thinking along Jewish and Christian lines. Um, he just was unaware really of what the Jews believed. And Jesus wouldn't even be born for 400 years until after Plato's death. Maybe it's 300 years plus, but that's a long time. But why did God decide now to come uh, when he came? Because the world could understand what was being said. It was transcending paganism because we do have a gift of rationality, but we have something more than just our ability to reason. We have a capacity for faith and trust in God. So let's turn um, once again and think about 
what it means to be a Christian, to believe in the resurrection, and the difference it means in our life. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but think about the people you know that just think they will figure it out all on, on their own. They'll come up with their own religion. They'll call them rationalists. Or people that you know that are reductionists, the nothing buttery people who see everything important in their life reduced to nothing but basically uh, chemicals or uh, biological uh, processes. Um, there's nothing more than the cave or maybe even less than we think there, there is. It's all an illusion. Then there's really nothing there. But you're a mystic. You believe in this greater reality beyond. And so here's the difference between you, the mystic, the rationalist, and the reductionist, and what difference it makes in life. If you're walking down a street and it's dark at night, the mystic, the rationalist, and the reductionist, the one who believes in something more, the one who thinks they can figure everything out, and the one who says there's less here than what we even think. Life is really endlessly nothing. So you're walking down the street, all three of you believe in one thing. You all believe that you better be careful because a guy can jump out from the shadows, point a gun at you, and rob all three of you. That's the same reality for the mystic, the rationalist, and the reductionist. Only one of those three people can hope that God helps them. I'd also point out only one of those three people said, instead of meeting a robber, maybe you'd meet and entertain an angel unaware. So you can decide which is the more rational way to live, believing your life is going someplace or believing you're trapped or believing it's all an illusion. Here on Oro Valley Catholic, we're firm believers in the, in the mystical, that there is a door out of reality and our Lord Jesus Christ opens it for us. And so enjoy your second Sunday of Easter, Divine Mercy Sunday, and I hope to see you at Mass.